0: 1 John chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 give ear to the word of God this morning. John writes, "Beloved, I'm writing to you, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time is it a new it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining." Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you have not been with us the whole time during our study, we just started a, a number of weeks ago in the book of First John. Uh, I'll kind of summarize it briefly. But First John, in many ways, is, is about the Christian doctrine of assurance of salvation. He says that towards the end of the letter in 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe. He's not writing to unbelievers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So he wants us to know, those of us who are in Christ by faith, he wants us to be sure to have assurance that we know the Lord and have eternal life in him. And there are basically, for lack of better term, uh, three so-called tests or evidences of a true and genuine faith. And last Sunday in verses three, uh, 3 through 6, we looked at what we called the first test or the first evidence of genuine saving faith uh, and of knowing God And that first test was obedience to God's commandments. Back in verse 3, John said this. He said, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And how is that? If we keep his commandments. So there's knowing God, but sometimes you can know God and not be sure. You you don't have the assurance. And John says one way you can have assurance is by keeping God's commandments. If you keep God's commandments, not perfectly. That's one way to know that you actually do know God. In verse 4... As we saw last Sunday, he gave us kind of the flip side of that coin, the the negative aspect. He says, whoever says, everybody can claim something, right? Whoever says, I know him, that is, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is what? He says he is a liar, the one who says that, and the truth is not in him. So if we keep God's commandments as believers, that's an evidence that we know the Lord and if we don't, it's evidence that our profession of faith uh, might, be, might be a lie in many regards. Well, in our text this morning, verses 7 through 11, John goes, to get, goes on to give us what you might call the second of those three tests or evidences of genuine saving faith in Christ. And that test, this test we're going to look at this morning, is the love of the brethren, Christian love for other believers, just as we can know that we truly know God if we keep his commandments, John tells us we can truly know the, that we know the Lord if we also love the brethren. Uh, Ian Hamilton sums it up well in his commentary. He says this, John continues in these verses, that is 7 through 11, to highlight the marks of a true as distinct from counterfeit faith. In, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, we saw that authentic faith is a deeply moral, that is obedient A deeply moral faith, a faith that is shaped and styled by God's commandments. Now, John tells us that alongside obedience to God's commands, a second mark of true faith is love for God's people. A second mark of true faith is love for God's people. So uh, love, love of the brethren is very closely related also to obeying God's commandments, isn't it? You know, think about this. John is explicitly connecting those things. In the previous passage, he talked a lot about commandments. Well, he's not done talking about that, is he? Now in our text, which is right after that, he talks about an old commandment that's also new. But what is that commandment? Love of the brethren. So they are very much uh, interrelated in, in many ways. You can you can dis- distinguish them, but you can't really separate them. Uh, in the previous passage, John spoke of obeying God's commandments in kind of a general way uh, and spoke of that, of obeying God's commandments as the love of God being perfected in us. Verse 5, now in our text, he speaks of a particular commandment, that of loving the brethren. So the first thing that might jump off the, the page at you when you're reading it, as we even as we read the text this morning, is that John tells us that this commandment that he's about to write to us about, uh, in writing of it, he speaks of it as being old and yet new. You could say this makes, this doesn't sound right, but you could say he's writing us a new old commandment. That is kind of the way he puts it in our text. Look again at verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, notice the the tone, as Rob mentioned, the tone of Paul to the Corinthians in in that letter. Notice the tone here. Beloved, he's going to talk about love, and he starts off by calling them beloved, reminding them how much he cares for them. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. In other words, this isn't some new thing that you've never heard of. I'm going to remind you of something you already know. Uh, No new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that's in Christ, and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, uh, from time to time in this sermon series, we'll have to have reason, I think, to... Kind of bring up the false teaching that John was was uh, combating against in this letter. It's it's not the only thing we have to deal with, but the early Gnostics that John uh, had to deal with, who were troubling the church in John's day. Uh, no doubt they spoke of a lot of new things. They spoke probably of new commandments, new doctrines. They claimed were necessary for true spiritual enlightenment. That was kind of their thing. You know, I, I forget uh, who I was talking to this week about this kind of thing, but. You know, in many ways, in many areas of life, in many things, innovation is a good thing. You know, uh, if it wasn't for innovation, we wouldn't have anything different. You know, when every year they release new, you know, new vehicles, new, new models or new versions of the same car, if they were the same car every year, nobody would probably buy them. So what do they do? They keep adding and trying to improve, you know, new and improved. Everything has to be new and improved uh, to be uh, marketable and whatnot. Well, when it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to the doctrine of Scripture teaches, uh, there should be no innovation. Uh, innovation in, in the Christian faith, not in the Christian life per se, but in the Christian faith, innovation is a decidedly bad thing. There's no new and improved gospel. Well, that's kind of what false teachers always seem to do. Here's something you've never thought of before that the antenna should go up. The red light should start to flash. Whenever somebody tries to come to you and tells you something like, this is kind of what the Gnostics did. And, you know, we may not have Gnostics literally in our day, but this kind of thing still goes on. People say, oh, I've discovered the secret of the fulfilled Christian life. I've discovered the secret to prosperity in the Christian. Whatever the case may be, that's, that's what they do. And, you know, and often the secret always seems to be presented as some kind of shortcut. And that always gets our attention as well, doesn't it? Well, those things are not good when it comes to the Christian faith. Well, the Gnostics in John's day, they were presenting that kind of a thing. Hey, if you really want true spiritual enlightenment, if you really want to be in the know and really know God, you have to follow us. And John's like, no, no. Here's this old commandment. And if you want something new, it's kind of new. But it's something you've heard from the beginning. That is kind of what John is saying to them, and it's something they've heard from the beginning, meaning back when they first heard the gospel of Christ and believed on him for salvation, this was part of that. The instruction to love the brethren was given early on from the very beginning when John preached the gospel and when anybody else may have preached the gospel to these churches to whom John was writing. Now, some commentators disagree and question whether or not this old commandment is really the one uh, about loving the brethren or perhaps it's something else. Um, I think when John says that he's writing to them an old commandment that you've had from the beginning, this points us, I think, unmistakably in that direction. He's not telling them something they hadn't heard. And what had they heard from the beginning, no doubt, was the gospel that John had written and proclaimed, the gospel of John, the same doctrines found in that, that book that we have in our Bibles. No doubt John may have circulated that to them, and certainly he had preached and written these things also to them. And so much of what John has written in his gospel, you, you might notice, maybe you've already noticed this, there are echoes of the gospel of John throughout the letters of John. Some of the same kind of phrasing, that kind of a thing, and I think that's what we're seeing here. And I think what we're seeing here at John in this letter in chapter 2 is alluding to what he wrote in the gospel of John in chapter 13. In John 13, verses 34 to 35, here's what Jesus Christ himself Said He said, here it sounds familiar. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples. How if you have love for one another, he's talking about believers, the his disciples. If you if you love one another, that is going to convince the world uh, that 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 they are really his disciples sincerely. The command to love one another is found very early on in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, you might remember in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked by a lawyer of some kind, you know, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what his answer was? Part of it was, was two different books in the Old Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is loving your neighbor as yourself. It says this, he, that is Jesus, said to him, Matthew 22, 37 to 40, uh, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. And what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, in some sense, at least as far as the application goes, When he says the law and the prophets, that's kind of shorthand for the Old Testament. He wouldn't have called it that, but that's what we think of it as now. Uh, He's saying the entire message in some sense of the Old Testament is that we are to love God and love our neighbor. I don't know if you think about that. That means it's pretty important. That means if we don't love God and we don't love our neighbor and love one another, we might know the Bible like the back of our hands, but we really don't know the Bible. We've missed the point. We've missed, in some ways, the the major points of the Christian faith and life. And so even the commandment to love one another isn't really entirely new. But Jesus, and John here also in our text says, in some way it was new. Now, how is that? The commandment itself is not new in, in some regard, but it's new in the sense of being fulfilled in Christ and in the empowerment to fulfill it that's been granted to every believer in Christ since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit by the ascended and reigning Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. He has enabled, in us by, enabled us more and more by his Holy Spirit to obey this command in an even fuller sense than it was, I think, in the Old Testament, along with many other things. And notice what Jesus says about the love of the brethren there in John thirteen thirty-five. Not only, as John is going to tell us in our text, does our love for each other as the brethren help us to know that we are that we really know God. But according to John thirteen thirty five, it proves to the world that we know God. It's a testimony, a practical testimony to the world that we really know God and that we really are Christ's disciples. In other words, love for the brethren is one of the distinguishing marks of a genuine believer in Christ. That is the message of our text in many Many ways. In verse 7, John reminds his readers uh, in the early church that the old commandment was the word that they had heard even from the beginning. And so not only did they hear the teaching of John's gospel from the beginning, they also heard from the very beginning of their Christian life. From the very beginning, they were told they knew they were to love one another. In other words, I, I, I say this very often, but I think it bears repeating in our day. He told them, in, in other words, the Christian life, the Christian faith, is never meant to be private. It's never meant to be solo. There are not meant in God's will to be solo Christians. No, no lone ranger Christians. Uh, we are to love one another. We are loved to, to love one another in the church. So in verses 9 through 11, John moves on to, to, to do something else to show us further what he is saying. He paints, uh, I think, a vivid contrast for us between those, the strong word, between those who hate the brethren and those uh, who love the brethren. There he says in verses 9 to 11, he says, whoever says, you know, this is something he repeats very often in the letter, people say one thing, right? But it's not just the words that you say that, that bear things out. Whoever says or claims he is in the light and hates his brother is where? Still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's, you know, there's no middle ground here. There's no gray area. Love and light go together and hate and darkness go together as well. And those are your two choices. Those are your two options, so to speak, that John uh, includes everybody under those two categories, one or the other. Now, the first thing he speaks of in, in our text, and he kind of bookends his talk about loving the brethren around these two statements about hating the brethren. The first thing he talks about is hating the brethren and what it means if someone actually hates the brethren. Now, this is no doubt, uh, in some ways, aimed at the Gnostics, the false teachers. And what did they do? They looked down on, that you could say, they despised those who refused to follow their teaching, their false teaching. They looked upon them as the, un, you know, the unwashed, the unenlightened masses. Uh, they probably avoided them in many ways. Maybe they ostracized them, uh, such people, such believers who refused to follow their teachings. Uh, But simply put, what is John saying? John is saying that hatred for the brethren, hatred for other Christians, is evidence of unbelief. It's evidence of unbelief regardless of one's outward profession of faith or claim, as John puts it, to be in the light. Ian Hamilton again writes this. He says, the absence of brotherly love is telling evidence of an unrenewed, unsaved life. Evidence of an unrenewed, unsaved life. To hate the brethren is to remain in darkness, John says. And he says it's also to walk in darkness. In other words, to live their daily life in darkness so that such a person doesn't know where they're going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded their eyes, he says. They may look very enlightened. They may talk very much like they are very much enlightened. But if they hate the brethren, it is a sign that they are still blind. You know, and, th- and that blindness, you know, we sing about it. I know we didn't sing Amazing Grace, we sang the tune of Amazing Grace this morning, but one of the lines in that hymn, we all know it, right? I once was blind, but now I see. That's this. It's the same kind of thing. The blindness he's talking about is the blindness of unbelief, the blindness of an unregenerate heart. That is what he is speaking of here in our text in verses nine through eleven. And so one of the things that you have to ask yourself and I have to ask myself when we read a text like this is if you are a professing Christian, do you love other Christians? Do you love other Christians or do you hate them? Now, hate might sound like a strong word, right? Maybe some of us might say, well, I don't hate them. I don't like being around them, but I don't hate them. Well, that's what John's talking about. There's no middle. There's no, ah, take them or leave them. There's hating them and there, there is loving them. Do you seek them out for fellowship or do you avoid them like the plague? That, that is a telltale sign of the true condition at present of, of your heart. You know, we're speaking of, of uh, Nieto and being on the Boxer and in the Navy and looking for other Christians. I can remember being on the, the Constellation and the Kitty Hawk. You know, 5,000 people, give or take, at sea with all the aircraft and crew on board. Uh, And I can't tell you begin to tell you how many of those 5,000 servicemen were believers or not. But at some point, you got to know who the Christians were. And I remember my friend Chris, uh, who, as far as I know, is not yet a believer. I keep praying for him. Hopefully one day he'll come to know the Lord if he doesn't already. We were walking through the hangar bay one day. I don't know if we were going to chow or what. And it seemed like everywhere we went, somebody was like, hey, brother, hey, Shriver, hey, you know, there was a Christian everywhere we went, whether it was the mess hall, whether it was somewhere else. And he was like, do you know everybody on this ship? And I said, no, I know all the Christians on the ship, not all. But I was like, we, we kind of get to know one another on the ship. Why is it? We sought each other out. You know, in some sense, it was a very dark place. It wasn't a very fun thing to be out at sea for six months at a time, especially in, in a war zone in the second Gulf War, right? But there was a haven. You know, not just a little bitty chapel room, but like you sought each other out when you saw another Christian in the passageway or somewhere else around the ship. It was like, Huh, ah, there's my brother. You, we sought each other out and we looked after each other and prayed for each other. It was a, it was a welcome thing to know you weren't by yourself uh, in a place like that. See, do you seek out other believers for fellowship or do you tend to avoid them like the plague? And a related question of that is, it's no, there's no way to get around it, is what is your relationship to the local church? Now, I know in this particular case, you're all sitting here, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir, so to speak. But that's okay. We all need to be reminded of these things and think about them. Um, your relationship, What is your relationship to the local church? Do you avoid church as often as possible? Many people uh, do. Or is it your habit to gather together with the Lord's people in the Lord's house on the Lord's day? Do you make time for fellowship with other believers? Is that a priority in your life to spend time with other Christians? Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith, which I highly recommend that you read and familiarize yourself with if you haven't already. It is the the doctrinal standard, uh, so-called, the subordinate standard to the scripture, of course. But it is the, the document that tells us Uh, what the scripture teaches in many regard uh, about many things of the Christian faith. Well, the Westminster Confession makes a statement regarding uh, the church that I think is sure to raise a few eyebrows in our day because people just haven't read it. And it it says that about the visible church, that outside of it, quote, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. When's the last time you heard something like that? Because we have turned the Christian faith, into something quite private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's personal in the fact that you have to believe, that you yourself have to know the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. But Christianity in no place in Scripture is ever written or described in a way as if it were meant to be private. Ever! Exclamation point. No Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. The only one you can think of is the one who was in an Exile. The Apostle John was on an island, exiled from the church. Otherwise, and, wh- and what did he do? God used him to write at least the book of Revelation from that, from that place. He was still mindful of the church. He even knew what day it was. He said he wrote that, saw that vision when? On the Lord's Day. John was still in his heart, even if not in body, present with the church. You might know the Belgic Confession is similar to the Westminster Confession. It is the doctrinal standard of the continental Reformed churches just like the Westminster is for us it says it even more bluntly it says this we believe that since this holy assembly and congregation that's the church is the gathering of those who are saved and there is no salvation apart from it no one ought to withdraw from it content to be by himself regardless of his status or condition now there are some that can't attend, physically can't do so. And we know that and we pray for them. Uh, but as somebody wiser than me often says, uh, the, the phrase I've heard a bunch of times is, is that a, a reason or an excuse? We, we tend to be heavy on excuses that really aren't reasons after all for our not, not uh, spending time with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. But think about that. The two major doctrinal standards of, of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches Since the 1600s and even late 1500s in some ways with the Belgic, our Reformed forefathers that we claim to hold to and, and identify with, they did not take the church lightly at all as many do in our day. Far, far from it. Now, there are some to be sure, as we said, who have no opportunity to join themselves to a local church body. Some are suffering in some places, not here extreme persecution, and even imprisonment for the faith. Others may live in a place where there is simply no true local church. Others are homebound due to ill health and or disease. But I'll even say this about the persecuted church. Very often, some of them, they still attend worship. They do so knowing that they could be giving themselves a death sentence. By associating with the church and by being baptized in many places in this world, being baptized as a Christian is a death sentence or at least a potential death sentence. And yet they still do it. They still held fast the confession of their faith. And part of that is by attending the service and the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ with his church. But for most professing Christians, and I would say at least in our land for sure, all those things that we might think of as reasons uh, really aren't the case. And so as the Belgian Confession makes clear, no one ought to withdraw himself from it, content to be by himself. What are they saying? It's not complicated. They're saying no man, you know, the old saying, no man is an island. No man is a church unto himself. No one. If anyone were to tell you, and I trust nobody here thinks this way, well, it's just me out in the woods with my Bible, just me and Jesus. That's a church. That's not a church. And that is that is." That is disobedience to Christ's command. That is not the way to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself if you do that. Now, if you want to go out in the woods to spend time with God in your Bible, please do that. Be careful. Don't start any fires. right? Do that. Spend time alone reading God's word, but don't do that to the neglect of the church or the gathering of of the saints. No man is a church unto himself. No one is sufficient in and of himself or herself to live the Christian life on your own. No one is. The Apostle John was not and wouldn't have claimed, wouldn't wouldn't have dreamed to say such a thing. The Apostle Paul, likewise. Now, there are some within the visible church who profess Christ who don't actually know Christ. That's part of the thing that John is talking about here. In other words, they don't actually believe, despite the fact they profess faith in all these things. And there are some, no doubt, who are outside of the visible church who do know Christ. But those things are the exception and not the rule. They shouldn't, if, it, if we think of those as that's the norm, there's something terribly wrong. No one who professes faith in Christ should willingly cut himself or herself off from membership in the visible church. No one who professes faith in Christ should be at home, or at least not at peace, without involvement in a true church home. I I personally know people that that live in the United States who can't find a church within an hour of where they live. And it pains them to no end, and one of them I know is literally looking to move. He's looking to sell his house and move to a different state just so he can be near nearer, near enough to a visible church that him and his family can worship and serve with. Well, the second thing that the good news in some way that John brings up is not just hatred for the brethren, but also love for the brethren. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the evidences of salvation. Look at verse 10. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So love for the brethren is evidence that you are abiding in the light in Jesus Christ. It means that you will not be stumbling around blindly as you're trying to live the Christian life, unlike those who walk in the darkness. You know, Rob mentioned the, the Paul's opening words, and he read them to first to the, Corinth, the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. In Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 4, in Paul's opening greeting to the church in Colossae, he says something that we might kind of read... I, know, I don't know if you do this. I do this sometimes in my worst moments. You read something and kind of just gloss over it. You don't actually spend a lot of time. Thinking, what, is, what did he just say there and what does that mean? But he, as he often does the Apostle Paul, in his letters you might know as you read them, in the opening greetings he says things like, like in one of my favorite ones is Philippians 1, 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And then he gives the reason why. For their faith. Now, why would Paul thank God for someone's faith? Not a trick question. Who put that there? Who gave them the faith and repentance to believe on Christ for salvation? God did. God did that. He says something similar in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In Colossians 1, 3, he says he thanks, he thanks God for them all the time as he prays for them. And then he gives the reason why he prays for them and thanks God for them. He says, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, and here it is, and your love for all the saints. Why did Paul say that? What was Paul saying? He's saying he heard of their profession of faith in Christ, and he saw the evidence of it in the fact that they loved each other. In other words, what was the thing that, that convinced Paul God did something there? Their faith is not spurious. Their faith is not, is not fake. It is a genuine God wrought saving faith because one of the first evidences he saw wasn't perfection, but it was that they loved each other. There was a love of the brethren, or as he puts it there, a love for all the saints, which probably means not even just their own little body. Right. He probably means they had care for those in other churches and other places that were not doing well or that might have been in a place of, of famine or difficulty. 1 John 3, verse 14, the Apostle John, later on in this very letter, writes the following. You know, John picks up these same things, themes over and over again. He says, 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You now, one of the things we're going to see as we go through the rest of this letter is John brings up the same things from different angles over and over again and expands upon them. So the things he's starting to talk about now, he's not done with yet. He's going to bring them up again and again. Now, how can we say that we love the brothers, we love the brethren in Christ, if we avoid fellowship among them in the church? Or is it possible to really love Christ while seeking to avoid his bride? You know, there there are many who try to do that. They, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, the church is what? The, one of the things we're called is the bride of Christ. I don't know about you, but if somebody hated my wife, I would take that quite personally. I, w- I wouldn't say, ta- oh, Andy, I love you, but I hate your family. I, I, would, I would not be friends with such a person. I would not treat them uh, well or welcome them into my home or into my life in any way. Well, people try that with Christ. I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. I hate the church. That just won't fly. Let's remember and take to heart the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And then he says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I was tempted to just read verse 25, but the more you think, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, that whole passage has to go together because it's all part of the same statement. Notice how the writer of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, closely connects holding fast the confession of our faith with stirring up one another to love and good works. And how closely related those two things are to the gathered church. How do you hold fast the confession of our hope? One of those things, it might sound strange to your ears, maybe, part of holding fast the confession of our... He doesn't say hold fast your hope. Just you personally in your heart of hearts by yourself in your prayer closet. He says hold fast the confession of our hope. He's talking about the gathered church remaining the gathered church. And as the gathered church worshiping the Lord, confessing your faith, even, your faith, even by the act of gathering and worshiping Christ, uh, among other things, you're confessing your faith when, when you do that. And notice what else he talks about with the gathered church is stirring one another up to love and good works. On our own, what ha- it, it sounds very much like if you're left to yourself, you, you're not going to be stirred up to love and good works. You're just going to kind of be warped in on your own self uh, and self be self-centered. If you, if you profess to know Jesus Christ by faith but are somehow not a part of a visible church, um, don't be content to stay by yourself. Don't, don't look for a perfect church. Many seem to do that. Uh, you know, what's the old saying? If you find a perfect church, leave it alone because you'll mess it up. You know, everybody always says the other one. They say, "Oh, the church is full of hypocrites." And what do you say? Come on in. There's room for one more. You know. Well, if you find a perfect church, don't go. Leave that. Leave that one be if it's reached perfection. But I don't think you'll find that in this life. Uh, What do you do? How do you decide what a a true church is that you should uh, attend? That's not by all the things we typically think of. But the early the the reformers came up with a, a test of sorts of three things. The word of God being preached faithfully and truthfully. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper being administered rightly. And church discipline being faithfully exercised for the good of the church. Those are the things we should look for. All the bells and whistles, if you don't have those, don't mean anything. All, all, the, uh, all the different accommodations and things that we tend to look at, if you don't have those three things, you don't have a church. So don't, don't pass go, do not collect or give $200 either way. Um, when you find a church like that, despite any imperfections, which we all have, uh, that stay at that church. Thank God that he has given you such a church. And may Jesus Christ be greatly pleased to bless you in that church to his glory. Hopefully, in our case, that's the one right here. Um, what else does it mean to love their brethren besides attending church? That is not the, the sum and end-all, be-all of it, but it's the starting point, isn't it? You can't love the brethren if you're not around the brethren. Uh, but what else does it mean? You know, gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church for worship and fellowship is a good place to start. It's an indispensable start, but that's not all there, not all there is to it. 1 John chapter 3, again, John brings these things up again and again. 1 John 3, verses 16 to 19, he says this, By this we know love. Look, see, It's one thing to say love the brethren. Now he's going to say, here's what it looks like. By this we know love that he, that's Christ, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, and here it is again, John being tender hearted to his, his, his flock. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but what? Indeed, and in truth, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. There it is again. He's bringing this up, not just that we do the right thing, but that it helps our assurance. Actually loving the brethren and taking care of each other ends up. That's not why you do it, but it ends up kind of a double benefit of benefiting the one you're helping and also strengthening your own sense of assurance of being right with God. And so I'll say, do we seek, do you seek, according to your ability, to help meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do we genuinely care for one another as, our fa- as, as a family, as a church family? And not just the Christians here. If there's Christians somewhere else that you know of that God has brought to your attention that are in some kind of need, according to your ability, are you able and willing to help? That's the kind of brotherly love by which the world will know that we really are the disciples of Christ. That was one of the results of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, wasn't it? One of my favorite passages in in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Remember, the day of Pentecost and the the, the apostles are preaching. People from all over the world had gathered to Jerusalem, and they're hearing the gospel preached to them, each in their own language, from people who had never learned those languages, remember they're saying, these are Galileans, these are dumb hick fishermen, and I'm hearing my language, How did that? how's that possible? It wasn't some babbling language, they heard their own language. That's what tongues was in the book of Acts. But, and what happened? It says about 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. They weren't just saved, that's clear. But how does the book of Acts, how does Luke... Describe their salvation. They were added to the church. Their souls were added to the church that day, and this is what 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 Luke says about what they did. Acts two forty two to forty seven. So they just got saved. This big crowd of people, and it says, and they that's the three thousand and everybody else. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It says, and awe or fear And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's a lot for one paragraph, isn't it? But what? where does it start? Well, they got saved. But what's the next thing they did? Kind of the evidence of the outworking of God's work in their lives. They devoted themselves. Now, that description may be like, like, what, what is he talking about? He's talking about the public worship of the church. They devoted themselves... To the apostles' teaching—that's what we're doing right now. This isn't Pastor Andy's teaching. This is the apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, giving us uh, the Word of God. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, actually spending time with each other. To the, it doesn't it doesn't just say to breaking bread to the breaking of bread. People, most commentators believe this is a, a reference to the Lord's Supper, in other words, the sacrament. You can't do that by yourself, or you shouldn't. That's a church thing, and And the prayers. They didn't just devote themselves to praying by themselves in their prayer closet, which I'm sure they did also. He says the prayers. The church gathered together frequently, spent time with one another, fellowshiped with one another, and enjoyed the means of grace together. And what was the result? It's kind of a chain reaction. It says awe or fear, King James, awe came upon every soul. The fear of God took hold, the right fear of God, the kind of fear of God that's a fatherly affection uh, for God, as a child of God for his father. Uh, All came upon every soul. Uh, The apostles did many wonders and signs, or God used them through it. And all who believed together had all things in common. In other words, they, they gave as there was need, according to their ability. This is not a communist text. This is not a socialist text. Later on in the book of Acts, what does Peter tell Ananias and Sapphira? It was yours to do with what you wanted. Nobody put a gun to your head. They didn't have guns. But nobody put a gun to your head and said you had to give away everything. But they did, didn't they? Voluntarily, many of them. And what happened? They spent time together in worship, breaking bread in their homes. And God gave them, it says, favor with all the people. Of course, people saw something was going on that was quite different than they were used to seeing. And it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So their devotion to the public worship of the church and the means of grace led to their growth in grace and knowledge of Christ in such a way that believers really acted for real like a family in the faith, spending their time with one another and even using their God-given resources to help one another as any had need. And what was the result? favor with all the people. A good reputation among the outsiders is what he's talking about. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Again, who added to their number? Luke doesn't say, well, people impressed in and and of themselves on on their own ability came to Christ by faith. No. God added to his church day by day those who were being saved. God did that. And so for us... Uh, may the Lord Jesus work in you and me, in us by his spirit, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, that we who believe might also demonstrate the reality of our faith by a sincere love of the brethren, so that we do not neglect to meet together as the church and that we care for one another as a, as the family of God and the household of God in the church. And may God use that to strengthen your assurance in mind that we really do know the Lord And also use that in his sovereign grace to add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Amen.